Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. I really just had a blast doing our um, origin series, walking through Genesis 1 through 3, and today we are going to start um, in Ephesians. Our series is called Know and Walk. Uh, we are going to work our way through Ephesians in 10 weeks, which might sound long, but that's actually pretty short. So 10 weeks, we're going to kind of systematically and thoroughly work our ways through. Um, we called the series Know and Walk because the first three chapters of Ephesians, the repetitive word is is no. And so uh, in Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, uh, or he prays that the eyes of your heart wouldn't be enlightened, that you may know the hope which is in, uh, which he's called you with. In verse 9, he says that, that God is making known to us the mystery of his will. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians are totally about you understanding who you are in Jesus, understanding who the church is in Jesus and what God's gonna do in the, through, in the nations through the gospel of Jesus. And so it's all about knowledge of God, knowledge of purpose, knowledge of identity. And then it shifts in chapter four, um, with a big therefore. And it says, um, uh, Paul says essentially, um, now, uh, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So for the past three chapters, he's just explained to us what is the calling to which we've been called. And in chapter four, we're going to shift into walking. And so as we talk about um, four through six, the walk chapters, we're really going to dive into um, what is the commission for the church um, and how does that commission apply to us today? And essentially what we're really trying to shake out of the last three chapters of Ephesians is who are we and what are we supposed to be doing and how can we be obedient to what God has called us to? Do you remember a Watchman Nee's old book um, called Sit, Walk, Stand? I get that wrong every time. Sit, Walk, Stand. You remember it was an exposition of Ephesians, and it, it might be helpful if you grab it and read it as we go through this, but it was essentially the same premise. Like Watchman Nee tried to explain who we are in God. Um, he really stapled on that verse that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, um, that we sit down with Jesus, um, and then the, the stand, that we stand firm. Remember Ephesians 6, the armor of God message, that we stand firm in spiritual warfare. Um, and so Watchman Nee really... Um, that book is a classic and very helpful um, as you try to understand Ephesians. Ephesians is different. Um, I'm just giving you a little background here, but we're going to jump in quickly. Ephesians is different and it's intimidating, to be honest, because it, Paul is not addressing a single congregation. Um, if you look at Galatians, if you gave me 20 minutes to explain to you the context of Galatians, I could explain it to you. I can tell you the problems that are going on in the church. I could explain to you how Paul's addressing those problems theologically and how the church should respond to those problems. If you gave me 20 minutes to explain to you what's going on in the Corinthians, it's really easy. Problem, answer. Problem, answer. Problem, answer. Paul is addressing just a slew of pastoral problems. Ephesians, not so. It is not addressing a single issue. Um, scholars believe that it is what's called a circular letter. Everyone say that with me. Circular letter. Meaning that he wrote it to, we think, at least 14 churches in Asian, Asia Minor. Remember, Asia Minor is like modern-day Turkey. It's not like China. Um, so at least 14 churches. So in that, Paul's speech is 
kind of grandiose, and it's really, um, his view is like this aerial view of who the church is. And so he is saying things like, um, in verse chapter one, we're going to get to, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. We could spend about three weeks trying to diagnose all the implications of that statement. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the spiritual realm. We could get lost in that. And so to some extent, Ephesians is intimidating to me because the language is so big, the ideas are so grand, that Paul himself will talk for a while and then he'll stop and pray. And they'll talk for a while and he'll slip into like this, what, what scholars are saying is like poetic literature, blessing. And so even Paul himself is like almost in this meditative sense, pausing and going, these truths are so magnificent that we can't really fully grasp them. And so I think over the next 10 weeks, we're going to struggle at times to get our hands around all that Christ has done for us. But I think it's going to be helpful. I think we are going to leave this series um, with a new vision, a new purpose. We are going to tie this series with some practical things that we'll explain to you over the next couple weeks. And so we are excited. We're passionate. We're believing that God is going to use Ephesians to shape us up in Jesus name. And that's what the Bible's for, right? To, to shape us up. Um, let's pray and we'll jump right in. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We acknowledge you this morning. We're asking for your spirit over the next 10 weeks. We're asking for a fresh anointing. Lord, as we try to wrestle with the truths that Paul proclaimed in Ephesians through your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause these truths to come alive in our hearts. Stir us, God, to action. Lead us, God, to peace. And we love you. We love you so much. You're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Our text today is Ephesians 1 through, uh, verse 1 through 15. Ivor Powell was an old preacher, and in his comments on this text, um, he, he told a story of some Welsh girls in the 30s who decided that they were going to um, make their way to Hollywood because that was a thing to do. The only problem was that they didn't have a way to get there legally, so they jumped on a ship. Uh, a cargo ship, and they were going to try to make their way in. Um, and the real kicker was that when they get to New York, they get their butts caught. And in their words, the the authorities were very harsh with them, kind of chewed them out, put them on a ship, and sent their butts back to England. Um, but just a few years later, uh, World War II would break out. And when World War II broke out, um, eventually we sent, uh, the states, we sent a herd of troops um to Great Britain to support the ally work. Um, and what history says is that our troops made more money than the troops in Europe. Our troops were a little better dressed. Our troops were smoking cigarettes and eating pizza and laughing and had this like nonchalant thing about them. And what history says is that those European girls couldn't resist them and they got very excited about the American soldiers coming. And so, and originally our government said to the soldiers, they said, we don't want you to start any, what the, what the record's called special relationships. No special relationships. Well, you put a bunch of young guys over there with money in their pocket and they're going to start some special relationships. And they did, um, start special relationships. Um, some estimates say up to a hundred thousand marriages, um, happened through that, um, little exploit. And so we got this phenomena, which is history sometimes calls the war brides or the GI brides. Um, and, but what happened was when the war ended or when a guy's or when a soldier's, um, 
stint was finished, he would get shipped back from the war back to the States, but his wife was still in Europe or in England. There were German GI brides, Welsh GI brides. Um, they were everywhere. And so what we had was the husband is now split from the wife. Um, and originally where our government said, we are not, we're not in support of this. Uh, originally, uh, uh, eventually we came around and said, um, we are going to pay for the women to get to the United States. We are going to send doctors and nurses to journey with them on the ships. We are going to treat them like royalty. And so now when these GI brides get to the States, there are parades and bands and we're all celebrating um, these women who are coming into the States because of their husbands. It was trying to celebrate and support the troops. But what happened was some of these Welsh girls who tried to sneak their way into the United States and got sent back, they now married a soldier. And so where they were hiding in cargo, hoping to squeeze their way through the immigration process, they are now escorted by doctors and nurses on a fancy ship. Literally, we rolled out red carpet as the woman, women got off the boat and we played trumpets and bands for these same girls. And what Ivor Powell said in his comments, he said, is that those girls were no more beautiful. He said some of them were actually rather ugly. They were no more smart. They were actually kind of dumb. Um, but when they came back, they were fully welcomed, fully celebrated because of who they now belong to. And that is the emphasis of Ephesians chapter one. The repetitive word is in him. In him, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, you may come to Christ and be just as ugly and just as stupid as you were before. But when you are in Christ, there is a spiritual blessing that you could not get your hands on before it. So Ephesians verse 1 through verse 15. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Our earliest two manuscripts of Ephesians um, and most reliable manuscripts don't have that line, who are in Ephesus. which isn't a big deal at all. Don't freak out about that. We, uh, we believe that the original manuscripts of these texts were completely inspired, completely inerrant, but we have hundreds. Literally, we have over 5,000. We're getting close to 6,000 copies of the New Testament, um, just from the first couple thousand, a couple hundred years, um, after Jesus' death. And so the two most reliable texts, they don't say in Ephesus. And what we know about Ephesians is that Paul spent two solid years in Ephesus, preaching, ministering. One of his most significant works were in Ephesus, but he doesn't, like his normal epistles, he doesn't, he doesn't give any, he doesn't acknowledge um, anyone from the church at Ephesus. And so scholars are pretty much in agreement that this was sent to Ephesus at one point, but it was largely meant for all of the churches in Asia Minor. And Ephesus, remember, was the it was second to Rome. It was the capital of Asia Minor. It had it had a amphitheater that sat thousands. It had um, a lot of of temples, um, a lot of false worship. It was an epicenter of um, paganism. It was an epicenter of sexuality. Um, but we, what we know from history is that, and from this text is that God had a people in Ephesus and Ephesus didn't define this people, but Christ defined this people. And so there were a, a faithful people in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. And that's really the pattern of God, not to transform a city from the outside in, but he takes a people group, he transforms their hearts and he leaves them holy in Christ Jesus. And now there is leaven in the lump and this church becomes fruitful throughout history. Verse two, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse three is where we'll start. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, follow that phrase, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now He's blessed us, we are in Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing. He's blessed us in the Beloved, verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us Remember that no verse. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to our purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also. So what Paul just said was that the Jews first um, who first believed um, were blessed in Christ. But now he's saying you also Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And then again, this verse, this this little phrase, to the praise of his glory. Do you understand what I mean by like big ideas, big thoughts, big language? Um, and so we're going to work. We Obviously, we can't. Uh, seriously, we could take three weeks on just being blessed with every spiritual blessing. But we're going to work through this kind of systematically and try to get a good grip on the large theme of what Paul's saying. So the repetitive phrase is in him, in him you are blessed, in him you have purpose. He's revealing to us the mystery of his will, which is wrapped up in him. And so the phrase that we're going to follow as we address these first 15 verses is in him. And the first phrase that pops up is that that in him, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people in Christ. Um He tells us that his purpose is to unite all things in Christ and that he has a plan to fulfill his purpose and his work. And so what we understand about God really quickly is that God is not unaware of what's going on in history. God is not biting his nails. He is not freaking out. He is not worried or anxious, but he has a will. He has a plan. Since the foundation of the earth, God knew exactly what was going to happen, and he intends to accomplish his plan. So God, at the foundation of the earth, before creation ever began, he had a purpose. He had a plan. His plan was totally wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And then watch um, in verse 11, which says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So now God has a plan, a purpose, and is working all things according to the purpose of his will. So God is not anxious, nor is God passive. He is fully in control and he is fully working to fulfill his purpose according to Ephesians chapter 1. Remember uh, Romans 8, 28, that he works all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purposes. And so 
to kind of sum up this idea, we are not open theist. That means we, we do not view God as being unaware of the future. We are not deists. We don't believe that God just wound up the clock and walked away. But we believe that God knows perfectly. He is omniscient. He knows perfectly the beginning to the end. Not for a moment has he been anxious or nervous. And not for a moment has he been passive. But he is working. So Jesus says things like, no man comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him. Jesus says things um, like, I, you, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I, that, that, and so, so the, the point here is that the Holy Spirit is the leader, that God has a plan and purpose, and we are not the one. We don't have to freak out. We can trust that God knows exactly what's going on, and God has a plan, and he intends to fulfill that plan. Paul says that God from eternity past before the foundation of the world in his omniscient understood exactly how things would shake out. And he initiated a mission to save for Jesus a bride to the praise of his glory. That he initiated a cause, a purpose. Our God is a purposeful cause. We talk so much about our destiny and our purpose. It would do us good to consider what is God's destiny and purpose. What is God intending to happen? What is God wrapped up in? What is God doing in the earth? Now, I know that that made everyone in the room a little nervous for a second. um, Because all of a sudden, you're reading this text, and at first glance, we think that that we're Calvinists all of a sudden. We, we start wrestling with, with, with what's called Reformed theology. And so um, if you'll just give me a second, I know this is like headspace for a minute. Um, if you just give me a second, I want to just address that. Um, what I just presented to you is not Calvinism. That was a pretty faithful Arminianism. Um, Jacob Arminius was the obviously the original Arminian. He was a student of John Calvin's son-in-law. So John Calvin's son-in-law was his predecessor. Jacob Arminius was a student of Calvin's son-in-law. And Jacob Arminius was a Calvinist for the most part until he, he was a professor of theology. He got assigned the task to um, convict another teacher of heresy. And the heresy that this teacher was teaching was that God did not, before the foundation of the world, assign certain people to heaven and hell. Um, and so Jacob Arminius went to start to study and to start to try to understand these ideas better. And he came to the conclusion with the guy that he's supposed to be convicting that God did not assign before the foundation of the world certain people to heaven and certain people to hell. And so we, we don't believe that. I, I don't, I'm not Calvinistic in that sense. I don't think that God in an arbitrary sense, said, you heaven, you hell, you heaven, you hell, and that somehow that was his plan and purpose. I don't think that. What what we need to understand, and this applies to a hundred different things, so just lean in and listen to me for a second. What we need to understand is that we do not interpret, we don't build our doctrine and our theology from any one single verse. We don't build our doctrine and our theology from one paragraph even. We build our doctrine and our theology from the whole counsel of the word of God. And so when I start to read Ephesians 1 and I start to catch ideas and I start to lean into maybe God did predestine me for heaven and maybe someone else for hell, I immediately my mind pulls 2 Peter 3.9, which says that he's patient towards us, not wishing that any 
should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Immediately my mind pulls 1 John 2.2, 2, which says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. And immediately my mind goes to John 3.16, which says that Jesus so loved the cosmos, the cosmon, that Father so loved the universe that He sent Jesus His only Son. And so now I'm holding two passages next to each other, and I've got to try to find a middle ground and a means to interpret the two. And, and, and that, and understand that every person, whether you want to admit it or not, we all interpret scripture. We all do theology, whether you want to admit it or not. And so every person is stuck in that tension. And so for a reformed theologian or a Calvinist, they hold Ephesians 1 tightly and they say Ephesians 1 plainly declares that God predestined me for heaven and someone else for hell. And then they have to wrestle through Second Peter saying that God loves all people and doesn't want anyone to perish. And so now they've got to sift through that passage and try to wrestle with it. And for us, I have a firm conviction that God loves all people, that God did not predestine any individual for heaven or hell, um, that God um, hopes for the redemption of all. Um, and so in that sense, we are fully, I am fully Wesleyan and Arminian. While I am not an open theist, I am not, and this is for a little church history for you, I am not, I don't follow Charles Finney's thought. Charles Finney was a lawyer. He was a preacher during the Great Awakenings. And he leaned a little more towards, they call it Finian thought, a little more towards the idea that God didn't see the beginning and the end and that you could be saved one moment and fall out of salvation the next moment. And so what would be helpful for us to understand is that there is such a thing as hyper-Calvinism. And hyper-Calvinism says that um, God meticulously determines all things, that God determined that there would be a holocaust and that somehow that holocaust would bring God glory and hyper-Calvinism, which by the way is very rare. I do not know a hyper-Calvinist. Um, so characters are not helpful. Um, hyper-Calvinism does say at times there's no reason to do evangelism um, because God's going to save who he wants to save. It's also very helpful for us to be aware of the fact that there is such a thing as hyper-Arminianism. And hyper-Arminianism says that if you stub your toe and a four-letter word slips out, that you better get on your knees and pray because you are not saved anymore. And hyper-Arminianism tells our kids at youth camp, you better come to the altar every night because if you looked at a girl with that thought, you need to get saved again. And hyper-Arminianism says things like, like if we, if the church doesn't do the work of the gospel, God's mission won't be accomplished. And hyper-Arminianism doesn't understand that even if I don't do the work of the gospel, God is going to have his purpose fulfilled. And that no one, there's not one individual that led Paul to Christ, uh, Christ led Paul to Christ. He just kicked his little butt off the donkey and started to explain to him the gospel. And so God is going to fulfill his purpose. That should bring you peace. Okay, um, so how do we wrestle through this text? How do we understand this passage in light of our Wesleyan Arminian convictions? Um, I wanted to read to you just quickly a quote from um, Jacob Arminius um, as he dealt with Ephesians 1. Um, and he said this, uh, Arminius said that, um, he said, God acknowledges as his own no sinner. And he chooses no one to eternal life except in Christ and for the sake of Christ. And God has chosen us in Christ. And so what Jacob Arminius has said about this text was that when you get down to verse um, 14 or verse 13, which says that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you were sealed. So what Jacob Arminius said was that when verse 
um, 4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That he, what the emphasis is in Jacob Arminius's mind is that God predestined a people to be holy in Christ. But you only get in Christ through hearing the gospel and responding. You don't, what he means by God sees no sinner as his own is that outside of Christ, no man is elect. That only in Christ you're elect. And that is a option. That is an okay stance to take, and that is a way to deal with this text and stay faithful to your convictions. There is another option, which I find intellectually satisfying, if that's a thing. Um, and it's the option that's always called the look down the corridor of time option. Um, I hate that phrase because I don't think God has to look down the corridors of time. I don't think God sits in his house and has to get out his telescope and lean in and look down to see what's going to happen in the future. I think God perfectly knows at every moment exactly how everything's going to shake out. I think God is fully informed. God always makes decisions with a fully informative understanding of how things are going to happen. So I don't like that idea that God has to look down the corridors of time. I think that God is always fully aware. He's perfectly omniscient. But what, the way that this line of thought goes is that God at foundation of the world, when he gets ready to create Adam and Eve, he understands. He's fully, fully aware. He knows everything. He understands that Adam and Eve will fall. And so um, at the fall, God already intends to that's why the scripture said that Jesus was, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God already intended to send Christ his son. And he understood that when he sent Christ his son, that there would be a particular people who would respond to that gospel. And God, in my mind, and, and this is my mind today, and my mind might change tomorrow. And that doesn't make me an heretic. It doesn't make the church down the, the street heretical for being reformed. But in my mind, God knows everything. He knew who would be saved and he knew who would not be saved, but he decided to create autonomous beings, free will moral agents who had the ability to receive him or reject him because in creating autonomous free will moral agents, he also created an atmosphere in which love could exist. And so God created, he went through with creation, understanding in my mind, understanding that Adam and Eve would fall. And that he would have to send his own son to shed his blood for the redemption of a particular people. And he understood that there would be some people who would reject him. And that doesn't mean that God wanted anyone to reject him. But he knows the beginning and the end. And so in Revelation, he tells us that there will be many who will be judged. That there will be many who will not come to Christ. And so he understands that in my mind. But that doesn't mean that he chose anyone to go to heaven and hell. It just means he knew it. And so if I have a prophetic vision tomorrow that says, and I, um, let's say that an angel comes to me and says, Donald Trump is going to run for president again, and he's going to win the election. And that may come to pass. And you could come to me and say, Caleb, you made Donald Trump president, but I could say to you, I didn't even vote. I just knew. So foreknowledge and complete control are not the same thing. Do you understand that distinction and nuance in my mind? So I think God understood exactly how everything was going to shake out. That doesn't mean he controlled everything because he created autonomous free will beings. He created people who could choose him or reject him because that is the only atmosphere in which love could exist. Do you remember the Stepford Wives? Did anyone watch that movie? Remember where they put the chip in the wife and then the wife does everything and then the husbands love it for about three weeks. And then you realize that that 
a robot can't love. You can, a robot can't love you. They can't respond to your hurts and your feelings. They can't engage in intimacy. And you actually can be intimate with a robot. So God created free will moral agents, people who could choose to receive him or reject him because that was the only way in which love could exist, that God could have a redeemed people for Jesus. So in the same sense, I'm wrapping this up. I know you guys are like, please quit talking. In the same sense, Haley and I decided we were going to have another baby. I don't know why we decided that. Okay, I'm really tired. We were on the crack rock that week or something. I don't know what happened there. Um, when we sat down and started talking about having another kid, we did not look each other in the eye and go, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be awesome if you had to push another kid out of your body? Like, wouldn't it be incredible for you to have to carry that thing and, like, have all the problems and all the aches and all the pains? Wouldn't that be awesome? No, we didn't, we didn't do that. We said, let's have another baby. That would be incredible. Let's have another child to love. We understood that the labor that all of the pain, that the fear that that kid might reject us one day. We understood that all of that is a logical consequence of wanting to have a baby. We didn't choose labor pain, we chose a baby. So in my mind, God chose a people. He didn't choose all the evil that would come. But he did choose to move forward and choosing a specific people. And in my mind today, again, give me enough grace to, to think through these issues. I'm 27 years old, give me a break. In my mind today, God did choose a people from eternity past. And he did know that there would be a people respond to the gospel. And he did, with that knowledge, decide to send Jesus. But he did not predetermine that anyone would go to hell. He did not make anyone's decision for them. He just had perfect foreknowledge. So that is, I'm not an open theist. I think God is in control. I don't think that God is biting his nails. I think God is actively saving people and redeeming. And in the same sense, I'm not uh, over here and I'm not saying God has destined Olivia to heaven and Francis to hell. I don't believe that with anything in me. But I do believe that God sees the beginning and to the end. And so that's the way that I address these issues theologically and move forward with these ideas of God having a purpose, God having a plan, God having foreknowledge, God predestining, God working all things according to the purpose of his will, to the, to the praise of his glory. I work all those things out in that system and it works for me today. But what I would encourage you, if I could say anything, I, I get so tickled. I just get really, really tickled with um, charismatics sometimes who pray every day for the third great awakening. And, and then on the other side of the mouth, they hate anyone who's reformed in theology. Like if you're a Calvinist, you're going to hell. That tickles me because we wouldn't have either great awakening without the slew of reformed theologians who preach the thing. Okay, so for the record, like I would pay large sums of money to sit in the congregation and hear Jonathan Edwards preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. But that Jonathan Edwards that preached that was fully reformed. And I would pay large sums of money to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. I would pay large sums. I don't have large sums of money for the record. So I would... I would borrow it if I had a way. I would borrow it. Um, but to hear Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, like understand that we are indebted to a slew of Orthodox ministers. And there is a, just so that you know, there is a fresh move of, this is really interesting, but it's absolutely true. There's a fresh move of millennials who are Reformed in their theology and Pentecostal in their doctrine. And so we have a, just a big herd of Calvinistic kids who are baptized in the Holy Ghost and praying and preaching for the gifts of the Spirit. And over here, I'm not rejecting them. I'm saying, come on, 
You can bring all of your ideas and thoughts. Just bring your sweat, my friend. And if you got your sweat, we can get some things done. Okay? And so I don't think we need to be a people that are so constricting that we say that the there are a lot of Reformed churches on this island, that they are not true believers. It would do us really well to understand the term orthodoxy and heresy and figure out what those things mean. Everyone in the room is like, oh, oh no. I didn't know we were going there today. What that boy's talking about. So without diving too deep into that, what we just got from our first point was that God had a purpose. God has a plan and God is working out his purpose and plan and God's not biting his nails. He's not watching you with a microscope saying people are going to hell if you don't do something about it. God, I promise you that if you watch church history for a bit, God through seasons has worked marvelously through the church and sometimes he works right around it. God is going to do what God wants to do. And we get the great blessing and privilege of being a part of it. But if you're not a part of it, God is still going to do what God wants to do. God is not going to refuse to pursue a heart because you sit on your hands. It's not going to happen. So there's peace for us there. There's rest for us there. And we are now, as a church, pursuing God's purpose. Trying to understand God's vision. Trying to line ourselves up with God's intention. So point two, so because God has decided to save us and accomplished his purpose in saving us, Paul now says that in him we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so you are not blessed with every material blessing, no matter what any preacher says to you on TV with an airplane and a tie. It doesn't say every material blessing. We would actually probably be worse for that. It says every spiritual blessing, which is much more valuable than your money. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It, it tells us that um, he's uh, blessed us. He has blessed us. So God has already accomplished his work in Jesus. He has blessed us. That old saying now that you can have as much of God as you want seems from the text to ring emphatically true. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing. The thing about blessing is, is sometimes you got to walk in them. He tells us that in Christ, in Jesus, we have redemption. Redemption, that idea means that we have been bought back. Literally, the imagery is as if we were slaves and God paid a price in order to purchase us. So what the text says is that we were purchased in Christ and the price he paid was much more valuable than silver or gold. It was literally the blood of the second person of the Trinity. It was God blood that was shed for us on Calvary. We have been redeemed from our slavery. It says that in him, verse 11 says that you have an inheritance in him. Now that Greek gets a little funny. Scholars kind of debate about whether it means that we are now God's inheritance or whether God has become our inheritance. And the text could go either way, and most commentators suggest both, that we now fully belong to God. He is mine, and I fully belong to, uh, He fully belongs to me. And so we say with the, um, we say with the bride from the Song of Solomon, I am a beloved's, and He is mine. And heaven is now our home, and we're not after streets of gold, we're after God's very presence. I love, I think C.S. Lewis said that what good are gold streets? That the reason that the streets are paved of gold is because gold is no good in heaven. That the gold now becomes what the dirt is of our streets. And on earth, people walk on each other's head in order to grab more gold. But in heaven, people will walk on gold in order to grab and embrace people. Beautiful picture. 
Heaven is not paradise because of its architecture or climate. It's paradise because Jesus is ours and we are His in the heavenly places. In Him we were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, that means that the Holy Spirit is a seal upon us. When God looks through the earth and He sees that seal, He knows that we are His. And the Holy Spirit is also a deposit. This is financial language. That God gave us a down payment, a deposit. He put an investment in us, which was the third person of the Trinity, to say that He would come and finish His purpose. And so Watchman Nee tells us that you cannot be a Christian by working. You come into Christianity through sitting, through resting in what God has accomplished in Christ. You don't come to Christ by the things that you've done or the things that you haven't done. You come to Christ by learning to rest in the thing that Christ has done. Now we are fully absorbed in him in the heavenly places. And the third point is that he made known to us the mystery of his will to ultimately unite all things in him. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, which was to, we'll get to this in later in the epistle, but which was to unite all people, Jew and Gentile, under Christ. And this is... Ephesians and Colossians were absolutely written at the same time. They were sent by the same person to be delivered. And this line is really tied to that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's above all principalities and authorities, and he is before all things. And so God's purpose from eternity past was to exalt Christ above all of the universe, all principalities, demonic powers, above all people and created beings, that Christ would be exalted. Now he's revealed to us the mystery of his will, which is that to unite all things under Christ. And so now we have the opportunity to participate in that will or to not participate in that will. So in conclusion, this, this, this little group of passages, um, most, most scholars say it's a hymn, like the language, the blessing, it's an old Hebraic form of blessing. In this little blessing, what we got was that God had a plan. He sent Christ to accomplish that plan. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to seal our hearts and as a deposit to fulfill that plan. And so what we got from that is that God's perfectly omniscient. God is perfectly engaged, that God is working, that that blood that was shed on Calvary is going to bring Christ a great reward. And God is going to accomplish it, whether he works through us or around us. Whether we participate or we refuse to participate, God is going to have his prize. We are fully blessed in Christ, because God intended to bless us in Christ, and because in Christ he accomplished his purpose. And so, I know this is like an interesting passage, but what, what I think we just learned from Paul was that the weight of this burden is not on your shoulders. Um, the weight of reaching this community is not fully borne by us. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit's plan. It's the Holy Spirit's purpose. He is going to redeem people. It's what He is going to do. So we don't have to walk around wearing this heavy burden. We trust the Holy Spirit. So, like, I didn't come to Christ. I don't get to say, I chose God and I'm so glorious. I didn't find Christ in my piety. He find, He, he found me in my sin and He 
finds people in their brokenness. We are not the leaders of this mission. We are just joining him in it. And so we can rest. And so when Christ says things like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All you who are heavy laden, all you who are weary, come under my yoke. My yoke is is easy. It's light. That, that doesn't mean quit working. That means I'm going to give you a new yoke. I'm going to give you a yoke that you were intended to bear. And when you're yoked to someone, um, that, that, that partner is bearing weight. And what history tells us is that yokes could be adjusted so that the stronger one could carry more weight. And so we, what I'm calling us to is to come under the yoke of Christ and to yoke ourselves to God's purpose and plan, which is to redeem a people out of this community to the praise of the glory of Christ. But what I'm calling you to is a life of peace and rest in the fact that this is God's work and he is going to accomplish it. And he has not, he's not behind us with a whip driving us he's ahead of us carrying the weight and he's allowing us like a father with a son to experience the joy of his great work you know when a father's working a father's building a house and there's this sense of like accomplishment the father doesn't need the son to sit around with the hammer and tap like when my kids help me work they're actually kind of you know, whatever. I'm like, get me the tool. They do it. That's great. Um, but what I'm trying to do is allow her to, my daughters to experience the joy of accomplishing a task. So God has invited us into his great work, but God has a purpose. God has a will. Our goal is to pursue God's vision for this community, not to make it up. We're pursuing God's vision for this community. That's why I'm, I'm praying for dreams. And visions. I'm praying for prophetic words to begin to come up. When you have an idea and you're just like, oh man, where did that idea come from? Maybe that's come from the breath of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to do is just try stuff until we, find, until we bring ourselves under alignment with God's purpose. And so we might try something tomorrow and it might not work. Maybe God's Spirit isn't on it perfectly, but what we did learn was what wasn't God's purpose. So we'll try something tomorrow. Try something the next day. And so I want to be a church. I'm calling you to be a people who are willing to pray and dream and try to hear, God, what are you doing in this community and how can we partner with you in that? All the while, we are living in peace and walking in rest. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.